Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. We're covering lots of ground with this episode of the podcast, all of it at high speed. Um, this episode, it's really about Lamborghini, about its history, its older cars, its current models. I think also what lies in store for the brand as well. Um, we'll get stuck into all of that stuff in a moment. First, though, we do want to cover off um, a couple of different areas. Some interesting stuff has been going on. Andrew's driven an important new hot hatch. Um, but first of all, we're going to start off with something that's really right out of your wheelhouse, Andrew, um, and your <laughs> opportunity to talk about Van Wall. Van Wall. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, by the time you hear this, um, the news will have been announced that um, Van Wall, or at least the chap called Ian Sanderson, who now owns the Van Wall name, is going to produce six continuation cars, which will be tour room copies of the cars that raced in Formula One in 1958. Now, if uh, any of you, which I would quite understand, are scratching your head and trying to remember what Van Wall are thinking, sort of old 50s British racing car, it's actually an incredibly significant mark. Um, Tony Vandervel uh, wanted, like so many other people in history, to, as he put it, beat those bloody red cars. Um, and so he started... Uh, Van Wall uh, as a Formula One team in the mid-1950s and chipped away at it and with the help of guys like uh, Frank Costin and Colin Chapman um, came up with his sort of ultimate design um, in 1957 and 1958. Uh, it won the British Grand Prix in 1957 um, with Sterling Moss and Tony Brooks driving which was the first time World Championship Grand Prix had ever been won by a British car with British drivers. Uh, and then in 1958, it was absolutely, it was actually kind of the car to have. Um, when it lasted, it usually won. Uh, and with Sterling driving, it actually won the first ever 
Constructors World Championship, uh, which was kind of the goal all along. Um, now, you may wonder why, having done that, Van Wall then promptly disappeared. Uh, and the reason for that is that, very sadly, at the final race of that season, a, which was the Moroccan Grand Prix, um, and the 62nd anniversary of which was on Monday of this week, um, he not only clinched the title, but very sadly, one of his drivers, Stuart Lewis Evans, had a terrible accident. Um, and um, although he survived it initially, uh, and they even got him back to England, six days later, he died of his injuries in a hospital in East Grinstead. Um, and for Tony van der Vel, that was kind of the end of it. He completely lost interest in racing. It was, you know, it was the most bittersweet of victories for him and being far more bitter than sweet um and although van wall did do little bits in 1959 and 1960 and i think even in 61 um tony van der Waal wasn't involved it was never you know significant again um and it disappeared from sight and it, it, it's kind of popped up every so often since then there was quite a big attempt in the mid 1990s to get van wall racing um there was some talk about formula one i think nigel mansell might have been involved but it didn't really come to anything um and then actually in the 2000s i don't know if any of you heard of a company called ronart um but that was a company which was started by a bloke called arthur wolfton's home uh, and he used to make these rather fun um sort of space frame old style um roadsters i drove one it was actually a very well engineered thing um and he got together with um ian sanderson and started to produce a thing called the what was it the van wall i think it's called the van wall gpr v12 which would have been uh in the early mid 2000s this had a jaguar powered engine and it looked quite like an old van wall but it had um wings and lights and that sort of thing so it was a slightly strange looking thing i never actually drove one um but that was kind of the last that we heard of van wall but um obviously the bloke hung on to the name um and is relaunching it um and i guess the significant thing to me is that the cars are being built by hall and hall which um if you know historic racing will know are you know they are the best in the business um and you know i have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that these cars will be perfect this is absolutely not uh, an attempt to produce some sort of slightly sad, sad replica of you know some 50s racing car these will be van walls um and uh yeah it'd be great if somebody who pays i think it's 1.75 million for each one um is actually you know gets out there and races them because you just you know occasionally you see you know the odd original come out and do um the odd demonstration but you yeah you i don't think i've ever seen one actually race um so that would be you know that would be terribly cool and the reason there are going to be six of them is that van will won six grand prix in total um so that's that i'm quite excited about it um i'm just kind of wondering <laughs> whether for a bit of press they might not let someone have a quick go in one um do you have someone very in mind? cool well i don't know um you, you're oh, thinking of me aren't you i am actually yes i thought you know <laughs> the young lad out and have a go why not <laughs> Um, oh, I completely agree. Um, so, uh, can you clarify something for me? And it's, this has confused me for quite a while. Go on. Um, can you, in a nutshell, summarise which cars are allowed to race in historic motorsport and which ones are not? I think you know we talk about these continuations from time to time, um, and I think uh, Lord March has said that continuations will not race at Goodwood, hasn't he, or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Well, the rules are there's a th- you know. Well, I mean, ultimately, if you're a race organisation, uh, you can have whoever you want. I mean, as long as it passed the cars 
um, past scrutineering, you know, you can have, you know, absolutely, you know, run what you brung. So there are no hard and fast rules about that. However, if you want um, cars that are properly period, then there's a thing called, uh, the FIA have a thing called an Appendix K specification, which means that the car must be to its original specification. It does not mean that the car must be original. Okay? And that is the loophole through which, you know, everybody dives. Um, and, you know, uh, so many cars you see these days, um, which look like they were made in the 50s or 60s, were actually made last week. Um, and, you know, all sorts, you know, Ferraris, um, GT40s, Cobra, I mean, Jaguars, just, you know, the lot. Um, and, and, and the reason for it, obviously, is that, you know, the genuine original of these cars are now so valuable that their owners, um, you know, don't much fancy um, racing them because, A, obviously, it costs a lot to repair them when they crash. But also, you know, the serious point is, is the one thing you can never put back is the history. So, you know, you will often find someone who has, um, for instance, there is a um, a chap in Germany called Wolfgang Friedrichs, who is a very, very um, eminent um, figure within historic racing. And he has one of the original Project Astons, Project 212. Um, He also has a 214, which he is the first to say is a replica it's uh you know it's a copy of the original 214 and he races that all over the place because if that gets smashed to pieces then you know you're not destroying history so um it ultimately it's down to the individual race organizer but the, the but as i say the point is is the car you know if it, if it's to race in an in an FIA event um it has to be to original specification it does not have to be original so these van walls would absolutely be eligible now being eligible is one thing getting an invite is another and if Lord March or anybody else decides that he doesn't want cars that were made last week at his events, he doesn't have to have them. Um, so, as I say, just because you're eligible to race doesn't mean you necessarily get to race. That said, being practical, um, you know, if Lord March wants a vamble on his grid, um, and if I was him, I definitely would. Um, you know, because the cars are absolutely authentic, I would, I would be thinking to myself, well, you know, would people rather see a car which looks like a van wall, goes like a van wall, and is in every way a van wall, other than the fact it was built in 2020 rather than 1958? Would they rather that were on the grid and know that that's what it is, or would they rather not have anything at all? Um, and for me, that's just a complete no-brainer. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the thing is, we could. it would be quite easy to take a sort of lofty view of it, a high and mighty view of it, and say, well, they're replicas, I only want original cars to be racing but if if you know if we all took that view there'd be very very few of these fascinating old cars running around racetracks at full speed and people would maybe even get hurt in them so you know i think the the way it is actually we're lucky enough to get to watch what look and sound and seem and feel like old racing cars going at it um at 10 tenths and i'd love that stuff so um, and they, they they are the same. Again, they're not the same because they've probably got quite a lot more power. But, you know, you could put a more powerful engine in an original car. It wouldn't make any difference. Um, and as you say, you know, you get everything. Um, you know, the sight, the sound. Um, it's like, you know, that 250LM that our mate Chris Harris raced um, at Goodwood a few years back. I mean, he was completely open about that car not exactly being, you know, built in 1964. But you know, you saw it, you heard it. You know, you know. Would you say? Would you turn around and say, actually, well, no, that car shouldn't be on the grid? I mean, forget it to me. Um, but I, I open, 
open is the key point, isn't it? Don't, to, to, don't the to race me, to me, it's all about the honesty. It's all about. Yeah. Um, you know, as long as people say, yeah, absolutely, um, here is this car because in the Van Wall's case, you know, there aren't any originals racing or here is this car because, yeah, I've got the original back at home, but I really don't want to stick it in the wall. And I don't think actually you'd like me to stick it in the wall. So, um, you know, here's one we made earlier. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm completely fine with it. It doesn't give me, it doesn't give me any trouble at all. And more to the point, I don't think the spectators care. Um, you know, forget you and me. You know, think of the you know the hundred and thirty-five thousand people who will go to, you know, Goodwood for a, a you know a revival weekend. Do they really care? I suppose some of them will. So I mean, there is a bit where you're sitting there, and you're thinking, gosh, you know, that's the car that, you know, that Jackie Stewart or Innes Island or Jim Clark raced. Um, and you know, if you suddenly discovered that it wasn't, you might think, oh well, never mind. But I don't think you know you'd say, well, that car shouldn't be here. I think you still you'd still want it to be on the grid because maybe it's unique or maybe it just looks fabulous. Um, you know, I think that's probably what counts for more. Um, I'm not creative or witty enough to find a segue between Van Wall and the new <laughs> Golf GTI. <laughs> Um, are you anything spring to mind <laughs> well front engine four cylinders oh, okay. number of twin wheels overhead maybe. camshafts four wheels steering wheel three pedals manual gearbox the basics the basics yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so you you reviewed it on drive nation at drive nation underscore on instagram everybody go and have a look you reviewed it on drive nation on friday as we're the day we're recording this actually yeah um and I think the thing that leapt out at me from your review is uh, the 7 out of 10 rating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was actually one of the easiest. Sometimes I agonise over the ratings and sometimes they just leap out at you. And that to me is an absolute 7 out of 10 um, car. Now, you know, I should say for anybody who's not completely okay with the way that we do things at DN that uh, we always mark cars harder than anybody else does. Um, you know, in our entire, whatever it is, two and a bit year history, we've only ever given one 10 out of 10. Um, we've done none this year, um, and I'm completely comfortable with that. So, um, you know, the, the point being is that if it's the best car in the class, it's a nine. Uh, for it to be a ten, it needs to be genuinely game changing, uh, as the Alpine A110 was. Um, so, you know, so maybe seven from me is an eight from anybody else. But even so, um, you know, I always really look forward to a new Golf. I mean, ever since well, it was whatever it was, two thousand and four, on the golf five when it really just rediscovered its merger having gone through a terrible period with the three and the four um you know um every new successive golf gti has always been something to smile about and this one it just it's not a bad car by any stretch and i think the rating reflects that um you know it's pretty good and i'm sure that most people have them will be pretty happy with it but it's just it just wasn't what i expected you know it's it's like the 911 isn't it you know if you get in a 992 haven't gotten a 991 you know that it's basically going to be that but better but they're not going to change the formula um they, they they might cook it a bit better they might you know add a little bit in here a little bit there but ultimately um it's the car they would always have made if they'd known how to make it at the time um and this golf actually it does vary the formula um and i think what they've tried to do um is you know jazz it up a bit they've tried to make it a bit well i know they have they've you know they've made it more sporting um so it's quite a lot stiffer um than it used to be uh, and that means the ride is not you know that lovely effortless way that golf gti's always you know have always ridden um well that's sort of been slightly compromised it's got slightly strange steering too you're never quite you're not as sure where the nose of the car is 
um, as you'd like or indeed as you know you might find in something like a Focus ST or a Civic Type R. Um, it, it's it's just a kind of slightly betwixt and between. It's it, it's like it's decided it wants to be more like them uh, and less like itself. And for the car that defined you know, that entire genre and is still the reference point um for it to sort of not feel comfortable in those shoes and try to do something else uh, i think is a shame because you know there are you know there are no shortage of cars like the focus st like the civic type r which are really really cool you know hard driving um hot hatchbacks and then there's always been the golf which has always been you know the car you know to use the cliche that you know it's even better to to live with than it is to drive and it's the car that's quite uncomfortable and it isn't in your face when the conditions aren't right and that's what i've always loved about those cars i've always sort of felt that in a golf gti there's nothing you can't do which is you know not right for the car whether it's i don't know going to some posh hotel or sitting in heavy traffic or blasting down a great road um and yeah it's I just wish they'd left it like it was. There you go. Mm. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, you, you could have reviewed that car in six or seven words then. Um, yeah, that, that, <laughs> yes. that's... that's uh, yeah, but they, we, we could distill the essence of DN even, down even further, couldn't we? We normally write about 350 words in a review. Let's start, start doing it in eight. <laughs> Why not? <sighs> but yeah, you're, you're right about the Golf GTI thing because... The whole point about a Golf GTI is that it's like a Golf GTI and you know what to expect, you know what you're getting and it doesn't matter that it's not quite like other cars in the class. Um, and it, it, I haven't driven it yet but it does seem like a pity that it's, that's been eroded slightly. Um, but the background to this is that the, generally the Mark 8 Golf doesn't move the game on from the Mark 7 much at all, if anything, does it? No, no, not much, no. Um... No, I mean, I think I reviewed that as well, didn't I? Um, and no, it, it, it didn't for me. Um, and, um, you know, you don't expect revolutions from golfs, do you? Um, you know, you don't get into a new golf and expect, you know, uh, you know all the parameters to be reset because, frankly, they, they, they very rarely need to be. You just, it's just what I was saying about the GTI. It applies to the standard car equally. You just want it to be, um, you know, a, a, a steady progression on from from where it was you don't want it to change direction because the direction that those cars have always gone in has always been you know out there in the real world where every road isn't a deserted mountain road it, it, it's always worked so well and, I, and i'm just i'm just curious and slightly baffled as to why they have decided that's you know i mean it's not like they've done a vault fast and have been running back in, in the other direction but they've deflected slightly um and i don't really understand why that is it's almost like this is kind of like the performance model it's the slightly hardcore model and the cooking car the sort of standard car the car that's you know uh, frankly that we probably all want it to be um is coming along in a minute but i don't think it is i mean they've talked about the club sport version and i'm sure there'll be another r um but um I think this is it. You know, the car I drove was an absolutely bog standard Golf GTI. You know, five door manual gearbox. Um, you know, very straightforward. Um, and it was, yeah, it just wasn't. It just wasn't quite what I'd hoped. I mean, good car still. Um, and I wouldn't say to anyone, "Oh, don't buy one of those." Um, but just go into it with your eyes open. That's all. Mm, interesting. Um, there's another hot hatch that you've been driving recently that I'm desperate for us to talk about, but I don't think we're allowed to just yet, are we? 
No, we're not. Don't even Do you know which one I mean? No, I, no, okay. no, no, I get into so much trouble. I'm not, <laughs> even, sure, I'm not even sure they know I've driven it. So, trap shut, oh, okay. please. <laughs> right, okay. We'll, we'll revisit that one when we're allowed to. All right, Indeed. well, we're, we're supposed to be talking about Lamborghini, so let's get on to that now. A um, little bit of background then, let's give this some context. So, for, founded by Ferruccio Lamborghini in 1963, essentially to compete with Ferrari. Correct. Um, and so there's a there's an interesting story that I've dug out um, from those very early years, actually from before the company was founded. Um, this is just one account of that story, and who knows how accurate it is, and there, there might be little falsehoods all over the place, but I, I just want to run through it quite quickly because it's, it's amusing. Um, so the story goes that Ferruccio Lamborghini commissioned an Italian engineering firm to design his V12 engine for him, um, to use in his new cars, which he hadn't released to the world yet, um, but they were coming. Um, and Lamborghini wanted um, a V12 with similar displacement to the the glorious Ferrari V12, the Colombo V12, the three-liter. Um, but he wanted it to be a road-biased engine rather than a highly strung race engine, um, which the Ferrari engine perhaps was more so. Um, and the the engineer that he that Lamborghini commissioned was Giotto Bizzarini, um, who had a hand uh, was involved in designing that Colombo V12, um, and so the the outcome was another highly strung um, engine similar to the Ferrari one, which wasn't what Lamborghini had asked for. Um, the figure quoted here is that it revved to nine thousand eight hundred, but I'm having a hard time <laughs> believing that. I think that's just bobbins. It would be good if it did, uh, but that must be nonsense. Um, and so Lamborghini was so displeased with the high-revving, dry-sump engine, which was, in his view, like a racing engine, that he refused to pay the engineering firm. Um, and the engineering firm refused to make it more, in quotations here, well-mannered. Um, and so there was a standoff. It went to court. And Lamborghini was ordered to compensate the engineering firm, um, by the court. So he had to cough up. Uh, and the irony being that Lamborghini continues to use a version of that engine until 2010. me. there you go. I thought I knew a bit about this stuff. I've never heard that story. Well, we'll just have to hope it's from <laughs> a reliable source. Oh, I mean, but... No, I mean, I, I am sure that, yeah, that, that most of that is, um, is absolutely as was. Um, I mean, it certainly sounds entirely plausible, apart from perhaps the 9,800 RPM um, bit. I mean, I, mean I, I know that Bizzarini was certainly involved um, at Ferrari in the early 60s, and he certainly had a, a big hand in things like the 250 um gto and then and and certainly that v12 is certainly uh you know his in terms of engines his sort of his kind of masterpiece so um you know i've not heard the story before but um the bones of it has the ring of truth to me mm. so the very first lamborghini road car was the 350 gt i think good work yeah good work 19 uh 1964 in production um i think and 118 were built with a couple of other variants as well literally two of them the gts and uh two others as well um but and then that was followed up by the 400 gt which only a handful relatively speaking were built um do you have any experience of those very early pre-mura lamborghinis at all none whatever there you go um i couldn't tell you a thing well i mean i I mean i know what they look i know they're not very 
um, attractive cars, um, but I know that um, they are... I mean, I think they're quite respected. I think they're kind of... Uh, those in the know think they're actually pretty good things. Um, but I've I've never driven one. Um, so They've, they've uh, got a kind no, of so frog-eye term- sprite thing going on with their headlights yeah yeah i mean i mean they're not very elegant cars uh i mean my lamborghini knowledge um i mean in fact i haven't driven i mean i've driven a few of the early cars but not that many um because there were there were just so few of these things built um and you know if you if today you decided that you wanted to go and drive i don't know you know a lamborghini islero well you know they made 125 in total and goodness knows how many of those are still around or you know something like a harama um you know there were i don't know how many of those they built but i mean it wouldn't have been 500 um and these are kind of names that have you know we all kind of know uh the names but i don't think many people realize just how scarce these cars are um so it's not like you know trying to go and drive a i don't know a ferrari daytona or something like that of which there were you know thousands made these cars are really really rare um so no my my lamborghini knowledge as far as the driving concerned um and even then not much of it starts with it starts with the mirror 1966 um very good now i i love these claims because someone will always pop up and say uh, i think you'll find um so but but the mirror is recognized it's thought to or said to be isn't it the first mid-engine supercar um d- does that stand up for you Something is ringing in my head. This, the, 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 this, ladies and gentlemen, is, is how you know we don't rehearse these podcasts because if we had, I'd have gone and looked it up. Oh, I've got a funny feeling it's not, you know, I've got a funny feeling there was something else. Um, and it might even come to Mangusta. There you go. The Tommaso <laughs> Mangusta. Now, just while you're there, well, I don't know. I may be wrong. So I'm live. Going to look this up. Yeah, could you just fill for a second while I look it up? Hang on. Okay, Mira, 66 to 72, 275 P400s, 338 P400S, 150 P400SV, and then a Roadster and a Yota as well. Okay, I was almost right. I was so nearly right. It's not the Mangusta, it's the Vallelunga. Okay, so it's the car, okay, the Mangusta succeeded in 1967, the Vallelunga, which came out in 1964 and was indeed the first mid-engine road car so there you go it wasn't the so i mean can i get a, can i get a golf gti like seven out of ten for that yeah that I mean, that's impressive actually you knew it was something didn't you <laughs> but yeah I knew, it was, I knew it was a tomaso so i mean that, that, that's kind of okay and the valalunga is properly esoteric they made not that i've got wikipedia in front of me or anything but they made 58 of them so um pretty thing um but yeah so uh, it, it wasn't but you know in the same way that you know the range rover wasn't the first luxury off yeah golf gti the range rover wasn't the first yeah all of that um you know it, it's like it's like the jet aircraft isn't it you know the everybody thinks of the boeing 707 as the kind of the car that is the aircraft that brought you know jet aviation to the world where in fact it was the de Havilland comet uh you know you get one at the beginning which sort of makes all the mistakes um and then you know others kind of look on and think oh okay yeah we okay i think we can do that now and then they come and smash it out of the park and and that's when you get your range rovers and your mirrors and you know and so on and so forth um so it wasn't the i think it was the first and maybe to date the only car to have a transverse 12 cylinder engine in it oh 
Leave a comment if you think we're wrong. Um, I can't think of another. That just doesn't seem very clever. Uh, well, yeah, maybe not. Um, yeah, I mean, can you imagine what getting at the plugs on the other on the, on the wrong side are going to be like? Yeah, total um, pain. I, I presume you have to take the engine out to change them. But um, yeah, so so that is that's what I thought you were going to say. Um, but um, yeah, have you I mean, have you driven a mirror? Beautiful, beautiful car. I have. Go on. Actually, yeah. So which one, which one was it? Which variant? It was an S. It was an S. Mm-hmm. So it was the one in the middle. Um, that, that, that's the common so, filth one, by the way. <laughs> Do they make more S's than the than, 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 than mirrors? I think so. Yeah. It, well, if 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 the if the P four hundred is the, the the standard mirror, then yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. T- Two hundred and seventy five versus three hundred thirty eight. There you go. Okay. Oh, well, there you go. Um, gosh. So I mean, they made very few of those as well, didn't they? Um, so, and I must be completely straightforward. I didn't drive it very far, and I didn't drive it very fast. I drove it far and fast enough, however, to think it was a bucket of bolts. Oh. <laughs> You know, the problem with these cars um, is you never quite know what you're getting. And there's so, I mean, I remember this with um, the first Daytona I drove, uh, which was years ago. Um, I got out of it and I just thought, I can't see what all the fuss is about. It was just heavy, ponderous, cumbersome, didn't feel that quick, uh, looked good. Uh, and then I, I drove one about two years ago for a job for Enzo magazine and it was just like, Oh, now I get it because this was a car that had been properly maintained, properly looked after, and and and, and went as it should always have gone. Where clearly the first car I drove was a bit of a mutt, um, and 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 maybe with the Mirror I drove, that's the same. But me, but their reputation is certainly not as uh, one of the great driving machines. Uh, beautiful to look at. I mean, you know, yeah, some people stunning. will say. It's the most beautiful um, of all supercars. And arguments to this day rage over who actually um, designed it. Whether it was, you know, it was definitely done by Bertoni, but whether it was done by uh, Giorgetto Giugiaro or Marcello Gandini is, you know, is, well, it's a debate to be had, certainly. But, um, yeah, I mean, okay, I've never said, I've never heard anyone say that uh, a standard mirror or, or or an S are like paragons of driving virtue. I've never read anyone say anywhere that they're incredible things to drive. I think the later cars, the SV, uh, which is the one without the eyelashes, so um, its looks were slightly spoiled. I think an SV, not that I've even sat in one, but from my understanding is that SVs were a lot better. I mean, clearly they were more powerful, but I think they had sorted out <coughs> excuse me, a lot of their problems. Um, and the SVJ, the Jota, um, was apparently something else again. But um, yeah, I couldn't say myself, I'm afraid. Okay, so we, I do want to talk about the Countach and Diablo and you know, the more familiar stuff, but I, I, I want to quiz you on some of the more esoteric stuff, particularly the 70s. Oh. I'm going to be so and, disappointing, you know, but go on, go on, try and me. and the Yalpa early eighties well, through the eighties. Um, what of the, the 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 lesser known? Which of the lesser known Lambos sort of leap out at you? Um, which of the lesser? I mean, okay, the Espada is the one. The Espada. Oh goodness, I'd love an Espada. Um, I think our friend Harry Metcalf has one, doesn't he? Um, yeah, he does. This was the you know the two plus two car that was made. Uh, I think it was made for about for about a decade. Um, yeah, from the late nineteen sixties, right. um, and oh, 
it just looks amazing. Um, I mean, in many ways, to me, an Espada is a more striking car than either. I mean, you know, a Mura is, you know, very beautiful and sinuous and voluptuous, and a Countach is kind of a smack in your face. But actually, given it's a two plus two, it's kind of the family car. I mean, you know, these days, if a company like Lamborghini decides to build a family car, you get an Urus. Um, back then you got an Espada and I invite anybody to go look at a photograph of an Espada and a Urus and tell me that the progress has been in the right direction um, you know it's just stunningly beautiful uh, exquisitely detailed um, and, and I understand um, lovely to drive so that's a kind of standout car for me um, the Iraco was again not driven one but for by reputation you know nice car but not as good as a 308 um, do you remember the silhouette? I mean, I think that was the kind of bridge between the Yuraco and the Halpa. Uh, it was kind of their little car. Um, and I always thought they looked absolutely amazing. Again, never even sat in one um, because, I mean, they made 50-odd of it. Um, so, um, yeah. I mean, I I love the looks of all these cars. Um, and I, as I said, I've not driven many, but... Um, but for me, the problem with all those cars were, um, by, certainly by reputation and by my admittedly limited experience, they've always been cars that whose visuals have kind of written checks that the cars beneath weren't quite able to cash. Um, and to me, I always... I like a car that's a bit understated, I, you know, and that's why I've always loved things like Daytonas and even Boxers. I mean, a Ferrari Boxer is quite a flawed car, and it was quite heavily criticised at the car time. But it's just understated and beautiful. And you know, when you look at your car and you think to yourself, "I reckon it should drive like this," you get in the car, that's how it drives. Um, whereas if you look at, um, well, we'll get on to the Countach in a minute. Um, you know, I've, again, I've only driven one of those, but it just wasn't what I was expecting. So the Countach is an interesting one. Let's get stuck into that now. Um, yeah, because I mean, it was it was on in production for a long time, and so it evolved quite a lot over the years. And then you know, you look at an eighties Wolf of Wall Street spec Countach, by which time it had sprouted <laughs> all sorts of lumps and bumps and wings and you know ungainly bumpers and all sorts going on, um, and it becomes a, a fairly brutalist looking car. But the, an early one, mid-70s Countach, is actually a very simple and plain and strikingly elegant thing, isn't it? That wedge shape. Yeah, the original LP400 is an absolutely gorgeous car. Um, I happened to, I was somewhere doing another job quite recently, um, and the chap who had the car I was going to see had one of them. Um, and he also had a later car. And I just remember just looking at the thing and thinking, that is just... Because I don't think of Countach as being beautiful cars, because... You know, when I think of a Countach, I think of Wolf of Wall Street or I think of Cannonball Run or, or that sort of thing. And you know, as you say, these are all the sort of you know, the bewinged monstrosities that that came afterwards. But, you know, if you go look at the, I think the original concept or it was first sort of shown in 71. Um, and you go look at that and it's such an exquisite piece of work. Um, but then, you know, that was you know, the start of the 1970s and by the mid, late 1970s and certainly going into the 80s, you know, fashions had changed somewhat. Um, <laughs> and, you know, these things became much more in your face, which, you know. Um, but you know, the, the reason I was disappointed with it, um, and I don't actually think I'm being terribly fair to the car here for reasons I'll come on to in a minute. 
is that, you know, I was a kid who grew up in the 1970s. And so to me, the Countach was, it was the car because, you know, although actually um, it was never as fast as it was made out to be, it never had as much power as was claimed for it, um, certainly not in the, in, in the early days. Uh, because it looked so amazing, um, and because when I read group tests with Ferrari boxes and Porsche 911 Turbo and Aston Vantages in car magazine in the 1970s, the Countach always won. That was my car. That was the car that was on the wall of my bedroom. Um, it was the car that I kind of venerated. And you know, if you'd asked me in 1978 which car I wanted to drive more than any other in the whole wide world, um, you know, I would have just said Countach. I mean, a, like silly question. I mean, why could it? How could it possibly be anything else? um and yeah then i you know and then i drove one which one did you drive it was a 500 or a 5000 s so it was the last one before the 48 valve car came out the quattro valvole um and i drove it i only drove it on an airfield um and it was terrible um (laughs) and you know again you know this is where you know harry metcalf will start jumping up and down because he's got a qv which uh i've not driven but i've spoken to him and i've spoken to guys like chris harris who have driven it who just say it's brilliant um, and i completely um take their word for it um I-, I suspect because a it's the qv and the qv was obviously a vast improvement but b also because harry keeps his in apple pie order um whereas this car i drove was probably a bit of a dog uh, you can never really tell because they always look nice that's the thing um but i mean some things you can't change i mean the driving position was terrible it was a f- spectacularly uncomfortable car to drive couldn't see out the bloody thing it just it put all these things between you and the driving experience you wanted to have and then i fired it up and it did sound great it sounded really really good but for me the the killer was it just wasn't that quick it just didn't feel fast to me um and you know and that kind of shattered the illusion a bit uh i just thought this thing was going to pull my head off and it and it just didn't i'm afraid but you know we are seeing it from a different perspective aren't we you know but you know if i'd you know if i'd been you know however old i was when i'd driven it but in the 1970s and so i hadn't had all these other cars i hadn't you know hadn't hadn't driven mclaren f1 by that stage uh maybe i'd have gone into it and thought wow this is amazing uh or maybe it was just a duff car it's very difficult to sell yeah, well, you just need to spend a lifetime driving lots of different examples, don't you? And then, well, indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. only. Okay, um, so let's quickly mention the, the Diablo because, as we all know, they're very, very easily crashed. Is that right? Um, well, yes, apparently so. Apparently so. Um, yeah, um, I, I, yeah I, I, I don't want to get. I felt, I felt very sorry for the bloke. Um, I think, um, I, I, I think that circumstances. Um, contrived to uh yeah fortune wasn't on his side then um but i mean i've never oh actually i was about to say i've never crashed a diablo i technically haven't <laughs> crashed a diablo um, hang on it is, it's yes or no define crash um an unintended interface with something immovable okay unintended interface certainly something immovable no so <laughs> right, um <laughs> it moved so i was uh i was in italy it was the it was a diablo roadster it was with the thing with diablos are the four-wheel drive cars which were the main cars like the diablo vt which i think was the original car they were actually quite tricky um 
as I found out when I was trying to do a, a skid in one of these things on a, I mean, it's stupid, it's something I never try doing these days. Um, I try to do a skid on a public road in a four wheel drive Diablo. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Well, <laughs> on this particular occasion, I threw it off the road. Um, wow. and, um, there was the, the thing I hit was a bit of tape. Um, because I don't know why, but instead of there being a barrier at the side of the road, someone had just strung some tape along it. So I went through that. So that did no damage. Um, and I found myself in a field. Uh, which is a little bit of a bank and I was going down the field quite quickly in this thing um, but I guess because it had four-wheel drive uh, I was able to keep my foot in drive through the field up the other side and back onto the road um, with I mean despite the fact that there was you know the, the car was full of grass and hay and it was making some terrible noises and I thought I've just ripped the underneath off this car and we got the car back on the road and once we sort of hoovered it out and crawled all over it there wasn't a mark on it <laughs> Wow, good work. So yeah. this was in period, was it a new car? This was in period, yeah. Um, yeah. Is this a good time to, re- to, to, to mention I just realised that's not the only Diablo I've crashed? I have actually genuinely crashed a Diablo. Well so, done. <laughs> this, this is why we yeah. do this podcast, because you're just reminded of <laughs> extraordinary things that you've got up to in, over the years. So go on, tell us yes. about the, what, the Diablo that you actually did crash. Okay. No, I did, actually, <laughs> I did actually do quite a lot of damage um, to this Diablo. Um, I've got a funny feeling I might have written about this on DM sometime. So if, if, if you know this story, uh, then forgive yes. me. Um, so uh, it was one of those stupid days that Autocar used to hold where you'd hire a runway and see how fast you could drive down it. Um, and um, I think I talked about this in my Farewell to Bruntingthorpe story that we did on the podcast. But anyway, um, so I'll, I'll be quick. Diablo SE30, which was quite a trick car, lots of nice bits of carbon on it, lightweight, bit more power. Um, and I am going down Bruntingthorpe's runway at 170-something, maybe 180-something, 180-something, I think. Um, and we're sharing the runway with somebody else. So we have one side of it, whoever the other um, user is had the other. And they had little uh, traffic cones to uh, mark off one half of the runway from the other. Um, but there was a 30 mile an hour crosswind, which didn't actually bother the Lamborghini very much, but it certainly bothered one of these traffic cones. Uh, and I can remember seeing it lift up, literally lift up off the ground, hovered for a minute and then shot out right in front of me. Waiting um, for and you. I can, <laughs> waiting for me um and i can remember looking at my hands and seeing them start an, em- an emergency lane change maneuver at three miles a minute and then just thinking to myself that's really not very bright hit the bloody cone um so i did so i hit the cone um and you know there was a bit of a bang but i thought well, that's gonna be all right um but there was a bloke with the timing gear at the far end of the runway um, and I can remember driving up to him and him just looking at the car. With the, his face had just gone completely ashen. Um, and it, it was only a little cone as well. It wasn't a big thing, but it, and, and whatever was meant to be weighting it down had gone. So it didn't even have that ballast in it. But my goodness, it, it made a mess of the front of the car. Obviously, when you're sitting in it, you can't see because the bonnet sloped so far away. But yeah, and it was all the really expensive carbon bits as well, I seem to remember. But um, there you go. So I have actually had two unintended interfaces in Diablo's. Um, having thought it was zero. Excellent. That's brilliant. Yes. Okay, well, well, there you go. <laughs> there's, there's clearly a lot of scope for us to revisit Lamborghini at some point, and we, I'm sure we will, because we haven't mentioned the Murcielago, the Gallardo. Um, I think, you know, there are some other sort of one-off and a few-off vehicles that we could talk about as well. But I think I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the current stuff, um, and I wonder if we can find some common ground on the Aventador SVJ Roadster. Um, I remember you talking about it 
briefly on this podcast, but I think we're talking about visibility and how important that is um, to the overall driving experience. And you said that in the Aventador, you, you felt like you could barely see out, particularly compared to a McLaren 720S, which relatively is like a goldfish bowl. Um, and so yeah. d- does that mean you didn't much like that car? Or... No, I did. I actually, I really liked it um, when I could use it the way it was designed to be driven. So, um, you know, there's no point getting into an SVJ unless you're going to drive it fast. Well, I suppose you might you know, want to crawl up the King's Road and go and park it outside Harrods if you're that kind of person. Um, you know, and good luck to you. I'm not myself. Um, but, you know, okay, what it is not is a car that is disappointing to drive. It's not like it, you know, it's not very quick or it handles badly. It does all those things really well. Um, but because it's uh the visibility isn't great because it's so wide it's it's a little bit like what i was talking about earlier with the Countach. it puts these things in the way uh it gets in the way between you and the driving experience you want to have now if you can go somewhere where there's lots of open space and the road is wide enough and it's quiet enough that these things cease to matter or certainly cease to matter as much my goodness there's a proper driving experience um waiting for you i mean that engine is absolutely epic um and no i mean driving a car like that is always fun it's always a privilege uh, and you never get out of it thinking that you're anything other than you know a really really lucky boy um and it may be that you know just as i'm getting older i'm just thinking to myself um you know i appreciate more um you know how many times you get to drive these cars every bit as much as how much fun they are when you do drive them um and something like a 720s it doesn't have that howling screaming v12 in it um but at the same time you know you could drive that car down any you know country road and you know you're not going to be worried about whether you're going to get clouded by that lorry coming the other way you're not going to be worried about whether you've seen you know anything because you can't see over your shoulder every time you get to a junction here and so you just you just relax in it more you feel more confident in the car and if you are relaxed and confident in the car your chances of enjoying it are obviously you know commensurately greater so um I know that Lamborghini, they kind of have a look and they kind of have a way of doing things. And, you know, and in many ways, particularly their, um, you know, devotion to, you know, multi-cylinder normally aspirated engines. I mean, I think, um, you know, the the fact that they've still got a V10 and a V12 uh, without a sign of a turbocharger anywhere, I think is, is absolutely laudable. Um, I just wish they were a little bit um, easier to drive. What about you? Yeah, well, you've described um, the SVJ exactly how I was going to actually. So, and Sorry. the McLaren, <laughs> the McLaren comparison is an apt one because driving a, a, a modern McLaren, the the 720s in particular, and you're at one with the car, you have so much faith and confidence in the steering. It feels light. It actually feels quite compact as well. Um, it deals with a bad road surface beautifully. So, in all those ways, it's a far superior car to the SVJ. However. The SVJ, and it's a car built for one scenario only, to be brilliant in one scenario, and that is deserted and brilliant B-road up in North Wales, which is where I drove yeah. it. Um, yeah. Dry weather. And then roof off. You, you just cannot help but be blown away by the whole driving experience. I got out of it shuddering. I, you know, I was <laughs> coursing with adrenaline. And... I I just in that moment I just couldn't criticize it really because a supercar 
not least a Lamborghini. It's supposed to make you feel like that, isn't it? And it just, it left me just absolutely wired. Um, and I thought... And, that, and, and that, if you could have gone back down that road the other way in either that again or a 720S, you'd have taken the Lambo, wouldn't you? Exactly, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just the hit it gave you was unbelievable. Yeah, I understand that. Um, and, you know, that, that's what those cars are for. It's the first time, I think, that I've really loved driving an Aventador because the rest of the time I've found them, as you say, big and bulky and difficult and recalcitrant and you never feel much confidence in them but my god in that svj oh it was it was sensational i i'd previously driven an svj albeit a coupe on ice um with the Lamborghini <laughs> ice, ice driving experience um normally these things are on frozen lakes but this one was up in the alps um in, next to a ski resort somewhere in italy um and it was fantastic you know it's one of those like andros trophy ice racing courses yeah, similar to that yeah um and basically what they want to teach you there is the scandy flick so one way to set the car up and then flick it back the other way to get it into the corner um and after after half a morning of it you find yourself driving this wild looking v12 supercar um on ice like it's a rally car and it's it's absolutely brilliant you know just doing linking corners with big slides using all the throttle in first and then in second gear. Um, ah, it, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. So, Did yeah, you stick uh, it in a snowdrift? Um, only at, sort of nosed in at very low speed. Okay, so the answer to my question is yes. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I, I don't, it wasn't, I wasn't humiliated by the, by the, okay. the incident let's just say that but uh, oh my god it was such a such a great thing to get to do uh, ice driving just always is isn't it i'm sure you've done bits and pieces it's it's such a yeah, brilliant no, way to yeah. to get to get to you know fling a car around um so there we go in uh, whether you're you know a nice driving ice racing track or a deserted open moorland road in wales the SVJ is epic. Everywhere else, it's it can be a bit frustrating and out of its out of its depth, really. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. Yeah. Okay, but let, let's let's now talk about the um, the Hurricane because it's it's rarely been my sort of mid-engine supercar of choice. But the Evo rear-wheel drive is a sensational thing. Yes, absolutely absolutely sensational um it's it's such an annoying car really because you know how good it can be it's like the it's like the r8 um you know the moment they disconnected the front drive shafts on that you sort of oh okay yeah this is what it could mean all along um and i wasn't quite as down on the hurricane as i think most of my colleagues were when it first came out but i was very aware of its of its limitations um but then the Performante came out, and that was that was really pretty good. I I did I did like that. I thought, okay, this this is a proper car. Um, and then the rear drive Evo came out um, because the standard Evo, the four wheel drive car, I drove that and thought, oh well, they they messed it up again. But then the rear drive car came out, and I mean, I would say that's the best Lamborghini I've driven. Um, and I'm about to go and have another good going one um and i'm genuinely very excited about it uh, in a way that i'm not normally about lamborghinis because i always have my you know i don't let myself get too you know, wound up about them because so many times i've got excited and they've just been disappointing but i've driven this before and i know it's going to be so i can't wait 
Yeah, the thing about the Hurricane for me, with the exception of the Performante, is that it's always looked incredible and had that wild V10. Um, and But those things were never quite enough to swing it over the comparable Ferrari or McLaren because the driving experience was just flawed. And it it felt sort of held back, didn't it? Um, like they'd built a, too much safety into it or whatever. Um, yeah, they, the I mean, I mean they, 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 they understeered. Um, yeah. They were difficult to balance um, on the limit. Uh, they didn't steer as incisively. And it's all because of that, you know, that, that, that four-wheel drive system, which, you know, for some reason they continue to... I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know whether it's because some people... They, I mean, clearly they need to sell them in, you know, sort of snow states in America and places like that. So I guess there is a place for it. And if you like... The, if, you, if you're an addict to the numbers, you'll get three-tenths off your not to 60 time and, you know, so on and so on. But if you actually just like driving, you just don't need it. I mean, the, the, the four-wheel drive takes away so much more than it brings um and you know it can it can literally in the case of the hurricane you know turn a car from one that you can walk away from without a look over your shoulder to one in which you know you don't get out of the car at the end of the road you're just sitting in it and listening to it and just going back over the drive and thinking wow that was something that was a proper drive um and it, it is amazing the difference um that it makes and they're cheaper Yes, yes. So you no longer have to overlook a frustrating driving experience to have that V10. Um, and it's a much, much more exciting engine than the twin-turbo V8s that you get in its rivals. Um, and yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's the, that's the key point, isn't it? You, can, you now get the driving experience to, to suit. Um, okay, well, we do have to wrap this one up, but clearly there's so much more Lamborghini ground that we can cover. I'm sure we'll come back to it at some point. Um, I can't believe we haven't talked about the Murcielago, which is probably... I was about. I think I've just said the Hurricane rear Evo rear drive thing is my favourite Lamborghini, but a Murcielago or is it Murcielago? I always used to get criticised because I always used to pronounce it wrong. Um, but they're epic things. They, so they were the first of the sort of Audi cars, but so they still had an awful. But they were basically very. They were Audified Diablos. So basically, they were Diablos with all the rubbish taken out and a bit of <laughs> you know Audi nows put in, but with still you know the Lamborghini charm retained. They were. F- epic things um so yeah i really want to come back and do do that justice to that yeah we will um no question and we haven't talked about the we haven't talked about the suv either or maybe we just decided not to talk about the suv because you which know, one do you mean podcast who needs to be talking about, oh well I, which one do i mean i mean the current one not the i'm not sure i even want to talk about the lm002 that much um but <laughs> okay yeah another time Fine, lots and lots, lots more Lamborghini stuff to talk about, and we will do. Um, so, yeah, it just leaves me to say thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, please. Rate it, leave a leave a little review. Um, and if you're minded to, please also check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Drive Nation. And as ever, thank you to everyone who has supported us there already. It makes a huge difference, and it means a lot to both of us. Um, so yeah, thank you, um, and we'll be back to talk to you all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much. All the best. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.